Brick Moon Fiction presents The Second to Last Meeting of the Tesseract Four by Eric Del Carlo Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle The group sat in a silence that Benson could only assume was stunned. Certainly he'd felt a cold blast of shock when his parents had told him this new fact about himself. More, it was like a trapdoor opening beneath him, and he had dropped through but caught an edge on the way down. But now he could see all that yawning space below, full of a great, dark unknown. Benson shook his head. He wasn't the creative one in their bunch. That distinction belonged to Cody, who, among other achievements, had named the group. They were the Tesseract Four because Cody, with a wizard sparkle in his eye, had snatched the appellation out of nowhere. Tesseract was some geometry term, a four-dimensional rendering of a cube or some such abstract blather, but the name fit, Benson admitted. From its first uttering, they had been the Tesseract Four, their quartet sworn to a blood oath, or as blood-oathy as things could get for a band of thirteen-year-olds. Benson's folks had told him last night, after dinner, and he had lived with this new truth all night, starting awake through the small hours, trying to get this sudden data point to process through the gray matter of his mental computer. He had been adopted. Mom and Dad weren't his birth parents. And they had waited until he was thirteen, thirteen, to tell him. But they'd had an explanation for that, just as they had been ready with other information which was almost as dismaying as his adoptive status. Benson's dad had been adopted. Benson had always known that, of course. Dad always spoke warmly about his parents, the ones who'd raised him. And he had also mentioned on many occasions that he hadn't found out about his adoption until he turned thirteen. His adoptive father and mother had deemed that an age when a boy was mature enough to take in such knowledge. Apparently Dad agreed with this assessment. His three friends gathered in his room on an autumn Saturday afternoon, all wore fraught expressions. Skyler and Devon kept trading looks, but Cody's steady gaze never left Benson. Finally it was Devon who said something, but all it was was, uh with an obvious question pending behind the sound. Benson drew a breath. When he had asked his parents, they had told him, and that new knowledge had also rolled in his mind all night long. He said, My birth mother was a Native American. My birth father is unidentified. A second silence took the room, and this one made Benson squirm a little. At last he said, uneasily, so, what do you guys think? Three-quarters of the Tesseract Four gazed back at him, saucer-eyed, until Skylar said, Actually, B, I think the Native American thing is pretty cool. Same here, chimed in Devon, as he was wont to whenever Skylar spoke first. Benson looked to Cody, their short little magic man, Benson's best friend since kindergarten. Cody offered a tight, strangely adult smile. It does give you some pizzazz. With embarrassed relief, Benson smiled back. He'd been thinking the same thing, that now he was imbued with a certain heritage, something whispery and ancient. And that fact was twisting him up with a wholly unexpected sense of pride and guilt. All his life he had thought of himself, when he thought about it at all, as Caucasian, 
Random white guy, was how he put it. No especial ethnicity or cultural signifiers in his genes. He knew there was some Irish blood in the family, but also French, German, a little Italian. All of it thinned out into a kind of European gruel, without importance or flavor. But if his mother, not mother, but this other woman, belonged to a people whose roots went deep into the land, who was part of a birthright, if he had come from her, and Benson didn't doubt his parents were telling him the truth, then it meant he owned a piece of that legacy. And yet he'd been random white guy all the time before that, belonging to a category of people who had visited such horror on the Native Americans. Benson was good at history. He could even read between the lines sometimes when the school textbooks tried to literally whitewash some past atrocity done to this continent's indigenous population. There were follow-up questions from his friends, the same ones which had first occurred to Benson, so he told them what nation his birth mother belonged to, Lakota. And yes, she was still alive, and he could contact her if he wanted. Then all the rest of it started pouring out of him, the unfamiliar dichotomies which had racked him all night, the sense of displacement, of drastic reassessment. He needed to rethink himself, and it was proving to be a massive effort, maybe one his thirteen-year-old self wasn't quite up to after all. But these were his friends, bound in a unity of geekdom, the four-class nerds who read science fiction and played D&D and argued about fictional characters, some of which weren't even human. By now they were pretty impervious to the jibes of classmates, and frankly, these days, geek wasn't quite so stigmatizing a term. Kids were inclusive, at least most of them, even out here in the high desert, in their relatively small town, which was, granted, only about a twenty-minute drive from Santa Fe. Even Albuquerque wasn't out of reach, which was as big a city as anywhere. Benson confessed all his misgivings, including the guilty pride he felt at having discovered his racial heritage. He even copped to staring into the mirror last night, turning his face this way and that, looking deep for any signs of ethnicity, unsure what they might be, really. He even felt guilt about that, since he had been raised not to judge by race or appearance. Wasn't it okay if it were just himself he was appraising? It made him dizzy. Eventually he ran out of words and subsided into a dull daze. He actually felt a little better. His friends all had listened supportively. But it was Cody who seemed to have understood best the churning depths of these new waters on which Benson was cast. Benson chuckled, a rasp in his throat. He hadn't even called this get-together. It had been a little while since the whole Tesseract Four had assembled like this. It was almost as if such geeky playtime were getting stale, childish. Maybe they were starting to outgrow certain aspects of their fleeting youths. Again, Benson shook his head. Cody was the one who ought to be making any poetical pronouncements about vanishing childhood. He had a flair. Benson could imagine him growing up to be a writer. Anyway, Benson said in an exaggerated manner, to show he was done talking about himself for now. What exactly are we doing here? Did somebody have something in mind? Devon put up a meaty hand, like this was the classroom. Um, I thought, you know, how about we go looking for the stitch stash again? 
If their group had a mythology, then the Stitch Stash was on page one of the Tesseract IV's gospel. Some people thought this particular patch of New Mexico to be devoid of glamour. It was a place, some disgruntled townsfolk said, where nothing had ever happened. The high, stony desert consumed everything, swallowing history as it transpired, so that no one with any flair could leave a mark. Hubert Stitch Tompkins, were he still alive, would likely disagree with that sentiment. He wasn't from their little town. Hell, back in his day, this little burg had probably been nothing more than a huddle of shacks, without even a power line leading to it. And, true, nothing much had happened around here back then, but Stitch Tompkins had happened. Or, at least, he'd passed through here, during Prohibition days, when open spaces like this were routes for gangsters running illegal hooch. Stitch had been a bona fide gangland character. Not a Capone, granted, but he had put together a convincing criminal track record, accused of murdering half a dozen men and known to be deeply involved in the alcohol trade. He also had a distinctive facial scar, a penchant for flashy jewelry, a love of pricey cigars and cheap floozies. He had passed through this territory quite often. In a letter collected after his death, which occurred in a hail of gunfire at a gas station outside Chicago, he wrote, The thin desert air of this altitude stimulates the fancy. I find sometimes that I am in the company of long-dead cowpokes and engines in war paint. They speak to me without words. Someday I think I might build a house here. Hubert Tompkins had never built that house. But it was rumored that he had left a cache behind up here in the high-altitude desert of red rock and crisp cobalt skies. Supposedly, he'd had a vault dug in the stone and had loaded it up with money and loot and, who knows, maybe a floozy or two, like he was a pharaoh preparing his place in the afterlife. The Stitch Stash was the most interesting persistent regional rumor. It had been the stuff of gossip for almost a century, and a few crafty locals had even cashed in on it. Myra Baines's feed store also served as the Hubert Tompkins Museum, which was mostly a wall full of newspaper clippings. But she had under glass an ivory-handled straight razor, which, allegedly, had belonged to Stitch, and which, less allegedly, he had cut at least one man's throat with. It was almost a certainty that Stitch had killed someone in that manner, but whether Myra had the actual murder weapon was up for debate. Since before they dubbed themselves, the Tesseract Four had been searching for that hideaway. It was something beyond all the fun, geeky shenanigans they engaged in. On some level, each of them truly believed the cash and treasure were out there. The desert was mysterious and damn near endless. As had been observed, it liked to swallow things. So, once again, their quartet lit out into the high, rocky country, on foot, to scour the natural byways of the eternal landscape. Maybe today they would stumble on the trove, and after that... Life would never be the same. Actually, Benson mused as they followed a dirt road to the edge of town. What they might do with a treasure wasn't the point. Or it wasn't the main point. If they did find a million dollars or whatever out here, someone was likely to take it away from them. The cash would be deemed the property of somebody else, or the government would claim it, or a real museum would demand all the artifacts. That was how stuff went. Adults screwed each other over all the time and showed no compunction about doing the same to kids. But the seeking itself had a holy glow to it. It was affirming. It was a purely positive act. 
There might be something of great interest and importance buried out among these familiar stone vistas. If the Tesseract Four found it, they would at the very least become local heroes, even legends. Today, though, Benson couldn't locate the eagerness, the righteous zeal within himself. His identity had shifted, and his internal contours had changed as well. He probably still had the fervor inside him, but everything had gotten shuffled around when he'd been told he was the adopted child of a Lakota woman. The sun saturated the land, though it wasn't terribly hot today. People who didn't know anything about the region thought it was Death Valley out here all year long. They didn't understand how far above sea level it was, and how winters were no joke and that there could still be snow falling on May the 1st. They trooped together beyond the town's outskirts, into the wilderness. There wasn't much vegetation, just scrubby stuff on the ground, so no woods to get lost in, but the vast stone formations turned and twisted, randomly eroded. The mesas of the high desert were something like ancient monuments, grand obelisks or gargantuan gravestones of crumbling red rock. There were fissures and trenches and, yes, caves. And, yes, Hubert Tompkins might have sent workmen into one of the caves years and years ago to dig him a tomb for his fortune. Of course, many other people had tried to find the treasure. People who knew about surveying and stone density and how cavities formed in rock in the first place. They still showed up here occasionally, and Myra Baines at her store was happy to take their money in exchange for all the information in her archives. She perhaps was the only local who had a vested interest in the stitch stash never being found. Benson hung to the rear. He studied his fellows. Schuyler, the most athletic of the bunch, could probably have passed in jock circles were it not for an aversion to all forms of competition. He was even squeamish about dungeons and dragons sometimes. But Devon could usually jolly him along. Devon was Schuyler's co-pilot in all things, and though it was subtle, Devon was as much an influence on Schuyler as vice versa. Devon was big, a little lumbering. And Cody, a miniature Merlin, shorter than all of them, but radiating the largest presence a lot of the time. He was clever, imaginative, decoding life as it came at him. Benson had relied on him for straight answers to unnerving conundrums since the first grade. A good passel of friends. Benson was lucky to have their company even if their activities were, lately, feeling a little foolish. Last night his parents had been ready with troves of information, should he want to know more about his newfound heritage. They'd gotten him books on Native American culture, several about the Lakotas in particular. Dad had even spoken to work friends who lived on the nearby reservation, and said two or three would be happy to talk to Benson. That last gave him a squirmy feeling. He couldn't imagine facing a Native American adult who'd lived a whole life of racial authenticity as a sudden member of an indigenous people, entitled to a legacy he'd never had to earn. It made Benson feel phony. Even though none of this was his fault, if you could even say there was any fault to be had. He cut off the thoughts. Or tried to. It was all throbbing in his brain, just like it had done all night. He hadn't said much of anything at the breakfast table this morning but he had felt his parents' cautious glances. Mom and Dad both worked on Saturdays, though, so there wouldn't be any further discussion on the matter until this evening. Why don't we split up? 
Benson's dusty hiking boots gritted abruptly on the rocky turf as he jerked to a halt. He was barely aware of the words before they left his mouth. The others turned. Split? Skylar asked. Up? Devon finished helpfully. For three long heartbeats, Benson wondered if he were suggesting splitting up the Tesseract Four, dissolving their group as something too juvenile to continue with. But that notion frightened him. Too much had already changed. Surely he needed these friends, no matter the infantile trappings of their club. Cody was looking back at him as if reading these very thoughts. How could a thirteen-year-old be so shrewd? Benson puzzled. Well, Benson said, are we serious about finding the stash or not? Is this a game, or do we really want that treasure? It had the tenor of a schoolyard dare. Devon and Skylar both immediately responded, I want it. I'm so serious. Cody was still eyeing him. That grim adult smile creased his face once more. Okay, we go that, 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 and that way. Cody pointing in four different directions. And we rendezvous right here at 4.30. Rendezvous? Devon murmured. Meet back, Skylar said, landing a very soft punch on the other's beefy upper arm. With that, they went in the directions Cody had indicated. The land was wide open, with dips and slow swells. Benson headed off, keeping a furtive eye on the others until one by one they were out of his sight. He gave a shudder his steps faltering. Talking to his friends had been good, but it hadn't solved anything for him. He wasn't any closer to understanding his new self. Hell, all he knew of Native American culture was what he'd seen in movies and on TV, most of which had to be crap. He winced to think of the awful stereotypes he had witnessed, winced further over the fact that up until now he'd been just another passive white viewer. He would have to hit those books his folks had got him and study harder than he ever had in school. It was a daunting task. He didn't know if he was up to it. He didn't even know, more guilt, if he wanted this new facet to his identity. It seemed a heavy responsibility. It was like discovering he was an Orthodox Jew and feeling an obligation to know his heritage better. Problem was, where did you start? He walked on, barely aware of his surroundings. He'd surely been over this ground before, having played here since he was old enough to leave the house unsupervised. The town had a baseball diamond and basketball court, but the unstructured nature of the outdoors suited him better. Besides, he sucked at sports. He kept going, turning over the same thoughts, reaching no useful conclusions. The land had risen, then dropped into a long, lazy, broad dip. The town was no longer visible to him. The mesa top went on and on, a world unto itself. The wind had kicked up a little, and dust swirled. Benson absently rubbed his eyes. He heard a sound, out of place among the moaning of the wind. It was like a soft crunch, a scuff, as of a footfall. As he turned to look, maybe one of the others had come after him for some reason, the airborne grit got into his eyes again and he shielded them with his hand. There came another gritting sound, and another, in the rhythm of someone walking. Benson, still wiping his eyes, gave himself a mental kick. He was hearing his own footsteps, 
He stopped. Two more footfalls followed. Then they halted as well. A chill, hard hand closed over his heart. In a rising panic now, he swiped furiously, yet delicately, at his eyeballs, getting out the tiny granules with the edge of his thumbnail. He blinked frantically, willing his sight to come back, afraid of who he might find standing nearby. What he found was a changed sky. An autumnal dusk spread overhead, shadowing the stony ground below. It had to be getting on towards six o'clock. He was supposed to be home. Dad would be back from work with Mom soon to follow. Where had the time gone? But Benson knew with a gut certainty that it hadn't gone anywhere. It had vanished in a literal blink. He peered about in the charcoal twilight. Where was the one who had been walking near him? Nobody was in sight. And yet, Benson didn't feel alone. It didn't matter, he told himself sternly. He needed to hurry home. He'd also miss the rendezvous with the others. He hoped they didn't think he'd ditched them. But before he could take a step back along the way he'd come, the dusk thickened, became something of dark, dense bronze mist. Light bled out of the very air itself. Benson could no longer see the land around him. There were no stars above. Night hadn't come. What was this? Fear made his heart skitter in his narrow chest. Then, suddenly, there was light. But it was an illumination as unnatural and disquieting as the dark. A ribbon of soft gold light unspooled, racing away ahead into the nebulous mist. A hum came with it, low and ethereal, almost a human sound. Benson felt a pulling it tugged on unknown edges of his being, deep within. He gazed wide-eyed down the streamer of light into an unguessable distance. He was supposed to follow the light. But he had a choice. He wasn't being compelled, only encouraged. The light was an offer, not a demand. Something important awaited him, but he could ignore it. He could give in to his very understandable fear, turn tail, and run. Aloud, he said, I'm going after it. He was walking again, not heading homeward, instead moving along the trail of the hovering golden glow with the murmuring human sound embedded in it. He wasn't particularly surprised when the nearby footfalls resumed. This journey wasn't his alone. He quickened his pace peering into the substanceless fog which seemed made up of nothing. Other footsteps joined him. He went faster. They kept pace. The ribbon turned this way and that. The ground seemed to rise and fall, but Benson couldn't be sure, with everything swallowed up by the bronze dark. In some remote pocket of his mind, he thought of Hubert Tompkins, the letter he had written to his sister before he was riddled to death by gunfire, him mentioning the ghosts of cowboys and Indians when he was in the desert. Was that what was happening now to Benson? He couldn't say. It occurred to him that he might still be in the real world. Maybe the mist and the light and the accompanying footfalls were all going on in his head. But his movement felt real. His feet touched solid ground as he moved. If that were the case, though, 
He didn't know where he had gotten to, how far he'd traveled. It was starting to feel like a significant distance. There was open country beyond the town, uninterrupted by little but the semi-impoverished local reservation where Native Americans lived. They weren't Lakota, but Benson did now have some tie to them nonetheless. Further twists and turns presented themselves, but he stayed with the humming thread of light. At points he was climbing down rough terrain with loose rock underfoot. But he persisted, despite these possible dangers. He still felt the pull. It was even increasing, drawing on a spirit buried deep within, something only recently nudged awake. He hastened and scrabbled and climbed and... The golden light. It had pooled into a mass... It was no longer unwinding into the distance. He had arrived at where it was leading him. B! B! Hands shook him. A sense of immense satisfaction had come over him. He knew he had accomplished something, even if he couldn't say what. B! Are you there? Damn it, are you okay? More hands, more shaking. He could see no one. The light intensified, flaring, and he shut his eyes against it. When he opened them again, he was in a cave. Artificial light shone. Someone had a cell phone out, lighting the dark, rocky interior. The ceiling was low, brushing the top of his head. His legs felt rubbery, like he'd come a long distance. Benson, can you hear me? It was Cody looking up at him with penetrating eyes. Benson felt a rush of gladness to see his best friend. If Cody was here, he must be safe. Whatever had happened must be over. Devon and Skyler were present as well, all of them packed into this cave chamber. Benson didn't recognize it. The gold glow was all gone. The humming sound vanished. I hear you, he said. Where are we? You don't know? Devon practically yelped, sounding incredulous. Skyler, who was holding the phone that was providing the light, shot him a withering look. Hey, he was sleepwalking or something. Don't pick on him. Devon appeared chastised, but still muttered. More like sleep running. He wiped sweat off his forehead with the back of his wrist. You didn't show up at 4.30. Cody said. He looked somewhat winded, too. We're not supposed to be here, Devin said. So we came looking for you, Cody continued. But where? Benson started. Not supposed to be. You were standing there, Cody said. But you wouldn't respond, except to say once, I'm going after it. Then all of a sudden you started running. We didn't know what to do, so we ran after you. Kept calling, trying to get through to you, but... But where are we? Benson asked. Where we're not supposed to be, grumbled Devon. Shut up, Skylar said. Cody said, This is on the reservation. Benson started. They really weren't supposed to be here. How deep is this cave? Pretty deep, Cody said. Again, Benson looked around. Why had he come here? Moss grew on the walls, he saw. Big, spongy-looking batches of it. 
Some final strange instinct seized him, and he reached out and grabbed a fistful of the gray, nappy stuff. With a grunt, he tore it away from the stone side. There was something behind it. Something made of symmetrical lines. Something that didn't belong deep in a natural rock formation. Benson touched it. Metal. Steel. It had been put here. Probably long ago, what with the corrosion coating it. He tore away another handful of moss. And another. And there was the stout hinge. And there was the chunky dial. And here was the stitch stash. Benson had been right. They didn't get to keep the treasure, regardless of the fact that they, well, he, really, had discovered it. But he didn't mind that. The vault was on the sovereign land of the reservation, and its contents, aside from a few gems which actually belonged to art collections that Hubert Tompkins had robbed, redeemed the legal assets of those who lived on said reservation. It caused a great deal of excitement, of course. The four boys did become local legends, more or less. Myra Baines took their picture and plastered the photograph, big as life, right in the middle of her Stitch Tompkins display. Each of the Tesseract Four was interviewed, but the out-of-town news outlets only wanted to talk to Benson. The people on the reservation held a ceremony to honor them, of course. It seemed to have some mystical overtones that escaped Benson, but he was touched by the evident display of gratitude nonetheless. He had made the other three promise never to say a word about any sleepwalking. They altered their story just slightly, so that it would be easy to memorize, and they repeated it over and over until it sounded like the truth to them as well. But all four of them knew something mysterious and inexplicable had happened that day. Devon and Schuyler looked now at Benson with a hesitancy, a reservation. Only Cody met his eyes square on, no flinching. They got together one more time as the Tesseract Four, but the meetup, again at Benson's house, bogged down, with no one able to agree on what they should do, what game to play, what geeky activity to indulge in. Maybe they were getting beyond that kind of stuff. At any rate, they abandoned the meeting after half an hour and never met again as the Tesseract Four. Skyler and Devon stayed tight, though, which Benson was glad about, same as he was happy that Cody remained his best friend. One day he might tell Cody the whole story, and maybe Cody could help him figure out what had happened. Until then, they still had their regular lives to deal with. You going to contact your birth mother? Cody asked one day. The finding of the vault had been a month ago. Not yet, Benson said. He gestured at the stack of books on his desk in a corner of his bedroom. I want to really know something about her people first. About my people. He still felt a little free-floating guilt whenever he said something like that. Cody smiled his adult smile. I still like the pizzazz, he said, and then laughed and Benson laughed with him. Eric Del Carlo has been compulsively, convulsively, and propulsively writing fiction for the vast majority of his lifetime. His successes include appearances in such world-renowned science fiction publications as Analog, Asimov's, and Clark's World. The anthologies he's appeared in are beginning to crowd his bookshelf. His novels range from sword and sorcery like War Torn, written with Robert Asprin, 
to urban fantasy like The Golden Gate is Empty, written with his father, Vic Del Carlo, to his young adult title, The Vampire Years. He's written podcasts for Earbud Theater, had his novels released as Russian editions, written scads of erotica, and seen his fiction chosen for a year's best anthology. He writes because he doesn't know how to stop, and because he's determined to carve out every last worthy word he can while he still walks this world. Also, he's eager to know you, so contact him via Facebook. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.